this morning, I'm actually, we're not going to go through, I'm not going to go through the disciplines review. Chris is going to do it herself. So we have her, she's teaching our first lesson on D2 for the year. And this is a really sweet lesson that she kind of, I don't know, kind of revamped from some old lessons and maybe even just actually just started over last year, right? That was the first time you did it. It was so encouraging. So we're really looking forward to this. Um, if any of you are newer to our church, I'll just let you know a little bit about Chris. Chris and her husband, Ken, have been at our church really from the beginning. I don't know if you guys were, I don't think you were members right away, but you were coming, right, on the Sunday nights. So they have been here for a long time. They have three grown children, one of whom goes to our church here now, and four grandchildren, right? Okay. Um, and Chris is involved in lots of ministries at church, but she was one of our, I don't know, founders of Wellspring. So she just was a part of Wellspring when it started, just put so much work into it for so many years. And really it's only been in the last couple of years that she hasn't been as involved um, as she used to be. So we're really thankful for that. She also runs the, or kind of is in charge of the mentoring program in our church. So if you are interested in like more formal mentorship, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, um, she puts people together, women together to disciple. So Chris is going to come up. She's going to um, do the disciplines and our new lesson. Good morning. It is always a joy to be here um, and to see some new faces this year. It's uh, nice to, to see you. Um, well, this morning we are going to start with the disciplines. And if I can get my computer going, we will. And I'm going to kind of walk through them in a little bit more of an informal way this morning. So um, rather than like just going through through each one and, and then explaining it, I, I thought it might be helpful if we actually kind of talk through them. So go ahead and, and turn your notebooks over. And hopefully doing it this way will help us to gain a, an even better understanding of, the wellspring, of uh, the, our Wellspring disciplines and how they'll fit into our lesson this morning. So let's begin with why we're here. I think Melissa's working on it. Really? Okay. Try and yell. <laughs> so let, let's, do you want me to do something from up here? Okay. So let's begin with why we're even here this morning. Proverbs 4.23 instructs us to above all else, guard our heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So we want to remember this morning that our hearts need to be guarded because they are easily deceived. This is a time to be equipped to learn how to guard our hearts. God's word will supply for us everything that is necessary for life and godliness and for effective ministry. This is a time for us to be encouraged. These lessons have been designed to help us see how we can live for God's glory and also to see God's provision and strengthening us as we strive to live obediently before him. So this time of equipping is to help us grow in our understanding of what it means to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God. You were reminded the last time that you met that we live in a mixed condition. This reminds us that our hearts need to be shepherded. Our hearts can't be trusted to do the right thing. So we must learn to be faithful, to lead our hearts, to lead our thoughts as we read God's word. So our time together will encourage us to read God's word in such a way that his word will have the right kind of impact on our hearts. It will affect the way that we think and the way that we live as those who have been transformed by the gospel. The way that we live will indeed reflect the gospel's work in us, which will result then in the church being strengthened. 
So discipline number one says the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. So if we are going to be faithful women, we must be women who read God's word and read it in such a way that it engages our hearts. We need to learn to read it in a way that will bear good fruit as it leads us to holy living. It will, it will bear good fruit in that it will lead us to worship God. That's our goal when we read his word, right? It's worship. I know that I can read my Bible in, sometimes in, in a way that doesn't impact my heart, that doesn't cause me to think about it, what I've read in the morning throughout the whole day. And I can read it in a way that doesn't lead me to worship. And so this discipline reminds me that I need to read it purposefully, prayerfully, and worshipfully. And this discipline reminds us that our hearts need gospel truths every single day. We need gospel truths all day so that what we are, so that we are, th what we are thinking is right. It's, we are thinking rightly about God and we're thinking rightly about ourselves. And then discipline number two says the faithful woman of God is concerned with those in her home and she ministers to them. Well, how does she do that? She does it with her heart fixed on God and his word. Our time in God's word carries over. It overflows into our ministry in our homes. We can't minister effectively to those in our home, to those who come into our home, without being disciplined to fix our hearts on God and on his word. The faithful woman of God impacts those in her home with God's word as they see the fruit of her time in God's word lived out. She's faithful in teaching those in her home God's word, and she lives it. She's an example to those in her home. She impacts them with love and with care because it naturally overflows from her time in God's word. And then discipline number three, this kind of impact that God's word has on our hearts and the impact that it has on, on our homes will also impact the faithful woman of God as she ministers to those in the church. She will be faithful to her care there as well. So this morning, we're going to focus on the first two disciplines. Our lesson is going to help us understand the impact that discipline one has on discipline two. We're going to see how closely these two are tied together as we look at the home, building our home with God's word. And we find this idea of building our home in Proverbs 14.1, and this is on your outline. It tells us that the wise woman builds her home, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. So let's think about how we are to use God's word in our homes. Homes are designed to be a place of protection, of fellowship, of rest, of instruction. Homes are designed to be a place of provision and nurture. Proverbs 14 tells us that if we are wise women, we will build this kind of a home. And that word build helps us to see that it doesn't just happen. It takes purposeful effort. Think about Proverbs 18.9 with me, and that's also on your outline. It says, the one who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. So this destruction of the home that Proverbs 14.1 speaks of might come about by the slackness the carelessness of the foolish woman. The result of that carelessness is that her home will be torn down. The things that the home is supposed to provide are not there. It won't be a place of protection, of nurture, or of rest for those who live there. There won't be the kind of foundation that is suitable for instruction. Now, that certainly is not what God has intended for our home, and we're going to see that in our lesson this morning. He places a high importance on our homes, on our household relationships. 
So in this room, I see a lot of different seasons of life represented. So whether you have small children at home, whether you're living in your parents' home, whether you're empty nesters, you have roommates, you live alone, but you have people coming, family members coming in and out, we must all be concerned with our household relationships. So today we're gonna to focus on what it looks like to be a wise woman who build up our homes with the Word of God. And to do that, we're gonna look at Deuteronomy 6. So go ahead and turn there if you haven't already, or you can even pull out your homework from last time. I think it was printed on the end of your homework. So now, um, since we're gonna be talking about uh, Deuteronomy, which is part of the Old Testament law, the Mosaic Covenant, and by the way, Mosaic just means that it came through Moses, I think it'll be helpful for us take, to take just a few minutes first to talk about how we as believers are to look at, how we're to view the Old Testament. So the first thing that we need to understand is that this was God's covenant with Israel, with that particular nation. Okay, This isn't a covenant that God made with his church, Although there are aspects of that that Jesus brought forward for us that continue in the New Testament, and we're going to identify those as we go along this morning. But we'll also see that there are aspects that have not been brought forward. Some applied only to God's covenant with Israel. And then the second thing that we need to understand when we look at the Mosaic Covenant is that it was never a means of salvation or of obtaining a righteous standing with, with God through works. Now, how do we know that? Well, Genesis 15, 6 makes it very clear when it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous based on his faith. Galatians 2.16 tells us that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. The message of the Bible is that the righteous will live by faith. Faith gains God's approval, not our works. That was true in the Old Testament, just as, as it is true now. Hebrews 11 is known as the hall of faith. It describes the faith of many Old Testament saints. And verse 2 tells us that by faith, the men of old gained approval. They were declared righteous on the basis of faith. So righteousness before God for Israel was by faith. Now, not all had faith, but faith was the only means of salvation for them just as it is for us. So Mosaic law, what we're going to see in Deuteronomy 6, is not a means of salvation. Rather, it is a covenant that God made with this particular nation of Israel that taught them how they were to live, how they were to live in the land that he promised them, how they were to live with God, and how they were to live with each other. It was to teach them how they were to live as his people in such a way that would put God on display to the nations around them. Obedience to God was to be evidence of their faith, and that's consistent with God's grace extending a righteousness by faith alone. He does the same thing for us, with us in the church. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that by grace we have been saved through faith, and he tells us how to live as recipients of his grace. He had instructions for our good and for his glory. So, Deuteronomy 6 contains instructions for Israel. However, there are principles in this passage that will be helpful to us as we seek to be women who build our home with God's Word. And so to help us see that as we go through Deuteronomy 6, we're also going to look at New Testament passages that parallel with these principles that we're going to find. So, let's go ahead and read our passage in Deuteronomy. And by the way, Deuteronomy means the law. This is the second giving of the law as the Israelites were about to enter the promised land. And remember, they are going into the promised land without Moses to accompany them. And so Moses is preparing them 
to go into the land um, where he will no longer be able to lead them, to help them to be obedient. So how are they going to keep from drifting from God without Moses there to help them? Well, Moses instructs them to protect them from that kind of drifting. So let's go ahead and start in verse 1 in Deuteronomy 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And then there are more warnings and instructions for Israel, but we're going to drop down to verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he has sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he has commanded us. So in this, in this passage, we see such a great picture of God's intention for the home. It was to be a place where God's word was taught and lived out and where love for God was on display. So let's go back and we're going to look through each one of these verses and uh, focus on some of the details. So verse 1 says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgment which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. And then the next phrase begins with that. It's answering the question of why. Moses is saying, God is commanding me to teach you. Why? Why am I to teach you these commandments? It's so that you may do them in the land where you are going over to possess. So God is commanding Moses to teach them so that they will obey. Now listen to why obedience is so important. Verse 2 says, So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. So their obedience was to cultivate a reverent fear of God in both their own hearts and in the hearts of their children and their grandchildren. Their obedience would bear fruit in their own lives as well as in future generations. So there's a principle here, and you have this on your outline. Our obedience to God's word influences others toward God and his word. Now think about that. Your obedience to God's word influences others toward God and his word. Now let's see how that's paralleled in the New Testament. It starts with those in our home. Turn to 2 Timothy 1, and we'll see this principle is illustrated in the life of Timothy. 2 Timothy is a letter written by Paul to Timothy. Timothy was a pastor and he was Paul's son in the faith. 
verse 5 says, For I am reminded of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. So Timothy had the blessing of a believing mother and grandmother. They had a sincere faith. It was a faith that was evidenced by how they lived. In addition, the Apostle Paul was a spiritual father to Timothy, and Paul instructed him as well. We see that in, cha in chapter 3, verse 10. Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, and so on. So we see the influence that Paul had on his spiritual son. Paul, be, uh, Paul became Timothy's example. And then later on in the chapter, Paul writes this in verse 14. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Now that pronoun whom is plural. We just saw that Paul taught him but look at what comes next. It points to others who taught Timothy. Verse 15, and that from childhood, literally from infancy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul is pointing out to Timothy those who had taught him. Certainly Paul did, but Paul is also referring to Timothy's faithful mother, and grandmother. From the time Timothy was born, these women had been living out their faith and teaching God's word to Timothy. It's a wonderful example of our first principle, that our obedience to God's word influences others toward God and his word. And, it all, and that begins in our own household. I don't know about you, but I find these verses so encouraging to continue to be faithful. So moms, grandmothers, why do we teach our children and our grandchildren God's word? Because it is able to give them the wisdom that leads to salvation. No child is too young to be taught the word of God. What a reminder this is for us. We must be faithful to teach God's word in our home. From what we know in scripture, Timothy did not have a believing father, but he did have a faithful mother and grandmother who taught Timothy the word of God. So if we are gonna be wise women who build our homes, we must first be women who obey God. We must be those who have a growing reverence for God and who influence others in our household toward reverent fear and obedience to God as well. So let's just stop and think. Who can you influence by your faithful obedience and reverent fear of God? We saw that it will be our children and our grandchildren, but maybe for you, it's your parents. Your obedience has an influence on them it influences your siblings, your husband, your roommate, or other family members. Knowing this ought to spur us on to be faithful to those in our household, to those who live there, and to those that we welcome in. The wise woman is the woman who knows this and builds up her home by diligently pursuing obedience. And she is diligent to repent of her disobedience and to live in the shadow of the cross where she is reminded that Christ died to set her free from sin and to forgive her of her sin and that he's died to make her a slave of righteousness. So she is earnest to influence those in her household toward a reverent fear and obedience to God. Now what about the foolish woman? We saw in Proverbs 18:9 that that woman was slack about her obedience, careless, unconcerned with the influence she's having on others in her home. And the result is that she is tearing down her home with her own hands. All right, let's look at our next principle. Go ahead and turn back to Deuteronomy 6. Let's look at verse 3. 
Oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it. So Moses is telling them how seriously they need to take obedience. And he gives the reason that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now again, this promise was made to Israel. We have not been promised a physical land flowing with milk and honey. God has not promised us that we would multiply greatly. Those are some of the, of, uh, the aspects of God's covenant with Israel that Christ did not carry over into the church. They are unique to Israel. However, there is a principle here that does carry over into the New Testament. And that is that obedience to God's word is beneficial to those who obey. So if you're a parent or you had Christian parents, Ephesians 6.1 is probably very familiar to you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you. There are blessings promised for obedience. We are to teach children to obey so that it may be well with them. And that's a good reminder for us. It is right to lovingly and graciously urge those in our home to obey God's word. When it comes to our children, we must train them to obey. Now we know that obedience doesn't save them. However, there are many benefits to obeying, both for the believer and for the unbeliever. And we'll see some of those as we get to the end of the chapter. Now, this does not mean, obviously, that our circumstances <clears throat> will be all that we want them to be. But believers do benefit from obedience because God uses it for our good and his glory. He uses it to conform us into the image of Christ. He uses it to purify us, to refine us, and to sanctify us. Obedience develops trust, perseverance, and maturity. It causes us to be equipped to comfort others, and it gives us peace. And obedience benefits unbelievers as well. You see a quote from John Piper in your outline. He's talking about the obedience of children who are not saved. He writes, gracious parenting leads children from external compliance to joyful willingness. Children need to obey before they can process obedience through faith. When faith comes, the obedience which they have learned from fear and reward and respect will become the natural expression of faith. Not to require obedience before faith is folly. It is not loving in the long run. It cuts deep furrows of disobedient habits that faith must then not infuse, but overcome. As one who was not raised in a Christian home and who wasn't taught the importance of obedience, I can tell you that this is true. So we must be faithful women who teach obedience. And as we do, we connect it to the gospel, helping our children and our grandchildren to see that they too are sinners and that their only hope is in our faithful Savior. The wise woman understands the value of obedience to God's word, starting with herself and the benefit that it has to those who obey for both the believer and the unbeliever. All right, let's go on to our next principle. Let's go back again to Deuteronomy 6, and we're going to pick up in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now this verse begins with the word hear. It's a command, it's an imperative. And the idea of hearing is not simply a matter of just listening to words, but rather it's the idea of listening with the intent to obey. It includes the idea of embracing it, of ordering your life around who God is and what he says and then submitting to it. So let's look at the rest of verse four. It says, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now this would have been a necessary reminder for the Israelites 
This nation of Israel has just come out of, of uh, idolatry in Egypt. And where are they headed? They're headed into a land that is filled with idolatry. And so they needed to be absolutely convinced that Yahweh was their one true God. He is their God. He is unlike all the false gods of the Canaanites who were unpredictable, unstable gods. They needed to remember that their God is unchanging. He is unchanging in his character, he is unchanging in his plan, and he is unchanging in his promises. And because he is unchanging, he is dependable. And this unchanging, dependable God is their unique God, the one and only God, completely distinct from man-made gods. And as their God, they were to love him with all of their heart and with all their soul and with all their might. Verse 6 says, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. Now, when you hear that verse, what do you think of? It ought to make you think of discipline one. God's word leading our hearts. God's design is that his word is to be on our heart, woven into the fabric of our inner man, ordering our steps. And it's all founded on who God is and on his call on us to love him completely with all our heart. And just a note here, when it refers to heart, soul, and mind, it's not referring to three different parts of us, but rather it's a way to underscore the totality of who we are. So we are to be completely devoted to loving him. And that leads us to our next principle. Love for God is expressed through loving and obeying his word. Now, when you think about the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Law, do you think first about love for God? I think when we hear Mosaic Law, we might think first about Ten Commandments or the blood sacrifices that were required. But when we read this passage, we see that what God thought of all along was love for him. Israel was not guilty before him first and foremost because they broke the dietary laws or social laws or sacrificial laws or even because they broke the Ten Commandments. They were guilty before the Lord first and foremost because they did not love him with an all-consuming love. And it was because they didn't love him first and foremost that they were unconcerned with or at best were very slow to obey those dietary, social, sacrificial laws and keeping the Ten Commandments. But in God's mind, it, love has always been the issue. And this is true in the New Testament as well. The cure for our disobedience must always begin by addressing our love for God. How can we grow in our obedience to God without first fueling our love for him. Part of battling sin and repenting of sin is reminding ourselves of God's love for us. That, and because that is what fuels our love for him. So this was also expressed by Jesus in the New Testament. He said in John 15, for, sorry, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. And then again in verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So we see that Jesus insisted on the same devotion that Israel had been commanded to give to God. Love for God must always move the, the believer to obey God's word. And that's important in our household. If those in our homes are to know that we love God, they must see that we love him through our faithful obedience to his word. His word must have priority in our homes as we seek him through our reading of his word and our obedience to it. And our love for him and obedience to it will then overflow into our homes as we use God's word to lovingly train those in our home to obey. 
being careful that we use God's word in a way that loves others and exalts God. That is one way in which we can, as wise women, build our home. Loving God and obeying his word go hand in hand. Now, what might the foolish woman do? Thinking through these three statements, and I put these in your outline, might be helpful. If we say that we love God, but there is no obvious love for his word in our lives, we may tear down our homes by cultivating an indifference to God's word. Mm -hmm. If we say we love God, but there is no love for his word in our lives, we may tear down our homes by cultivating an indifference to God's word. Or if we say we love God, but are unconcerned with obedience, we may tear down our homes by cultivating an indifference towards sin. If we are concerned with obedience, but fail to communicate love for God and his word, we may tear down our homes with self-righteousness because love for God is expressed through loving and obeying his word. Now, I know that we are all at different places. None of us have a perfect understanding of the Bible. None of us are perfect in our obedience. However, wherever we are, we need to keep growing, keep learning more of God's word, we need to keep repenting of sin, keep hiding his word in our hearts. We need to persevere in discipline one. So if you have a house full of people, maybe you have a house full of little people, then it will require for you to be creative. I've walked through just a few seasons of life and I know how hard it can be to be continually, consistently in God's word during some of those seasons of life. So if you are in a season of life right now where it is difficult for you to be in God's word, let me just encourage you to do what you can, but do something. You can do something as simple as saying, we're not gonna get down from the breakfast table until we've read a verse together. And then, you know what? You have a verse that you can meditate on all throughout the day, and you can use that verse to train your children. I had many years of spending time in God's Word, sitting in the hallway of our home while the kids played in their rooms. They were not allowed to come out while my Bible was open. And was it distracting? Yes, it was. But it was something. It got me in God's word. And then as they got older and they were okay to be on their own for a little bit, I hung something on the outside of the doorknob of, of our bedroom door so that I could spend time in God's word. And when that, it was just a little heart, when that was on the outside, the kids knew not to come in because being in God's word was important. And I knew that how, how, um, how much I needed it for my own heart and for training our children. And as we were reminded at the women's conference this year, this is the one thing necessary. Time in God's word is the good part. And so we need to remember that even during those harder seasons of life, that even a little bit of God's word is powerful and it's useful for our own heart shepherding and for influencing others. That brings us to number four. God's design is for his word to saturate our lives, our homes, and our relationships. Let's look back at Deuteronomy 6. We're going to look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So verse 7 begins with a command to teach them diligently. You'll see two quotes in your outline that I think will help to explain um, in a really good picture of what this means. 
So the first one says, frequently repeat these things to them. Try all ways of instilling them into their mind and making them pierce into their hearts as in, as in a knife, as in sharpening a knife. It is turned first on one side and then another. So I don't know if any of you still sharpen knives that way, but it's the same motion over and over again. And the idea is that we do it diligently in the sense that you're doing it over and over again, just like sharpening a knife on a stone. And then the second idea there is the image of the engraver of a monument who takes hammer and chisel in hand and with painstaking care etches a text into the face of a solid slab of granite. The sheer labor of such a task is daunting indeed, but once done, the message is there to stay. So again, the idea is that it is laborious. You cannot stop. Israel was to do this over and over again. And these instructions for Israel paint such an accurate picture for us of the work that it takes as well. First in shepherding our own hearts, we always have to start there, right? And we do it continually because our hearts don't just hear truth one time and then respond to it in perfect obedience forever, right? Wouldn't that be nice? But that's not the way it works. These truths need to be poured into our hearts and taught to our hearts over and over again in order for their truths to penetrate and to take root and to go deep, just like we see described here and then we are to teach them diligently. So this imprinting of God's word begins with our own hearts and extends to those in our household. We have to be faithful in reminding ourselves and those in our household about the precious truths of God's word and because it's what we all need and we need it over and over again. And then the next thing we see in verse 7 is that this diligent teaching was to take place when you sit and when you walk. And again, this shows us that the diligent teaching needs to take place beyond things like family devotions alone. Although things like family devotions are a very helpful part of building our home with God's word. But this is talking about the activities all throughout the day. It is to be formal, and informal teaching. Israel was, upon any occasion, within the home or outside the home, to be impressing the Word of God on those in their home. That's what it meant by when you sit and when you walk. And then it continues when you lie down and when you rise up. So from beginning to end, their days were to be characterized by impressing the Word of God upon the hearts of those in their home. So in other words, their first and foremost responsibility was to see that their household understood the word of God. And for the Israelite, that was to go even further still. Look at verse 8. It says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. So the Israelite obeyed this by placing written commandments in leather, strap, in leather pouches and then literally binding them on their hand in their foreheads with leather straps. It was to serve as a reminder that God's word was to influence everything that they did, everything that they thought. It was to be a constant reminder of, God, of God's word and how it was to influence their household. One commentator expresses the heart behind this commandment this way. The commandments were to be sovereign over individual Israelites and they were to serve as constraints or as guides on their hands and as mental checks upon their thinking. The purpose of using such symbolism was to connect God's law with the everyday routine matters of life. Nothing was to be considered outside the scope of his authority. And then verse 9 continues, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This likewise was the Jewish practice of writing passages of scripture on a small piece of parchment paper, and then they rolled it up and they inserted it into a case and attached it to their doors and the doorposts of their house. 
So when they were leaving their house, the last thing they would see was God's word. And as when they went through the gate, the last thing that they would see as they left their property and headed out to go interact with other people was God's word. And at the end of the day, when they came back home and they walked through that gate and they walked through the door to their home, they would again see God's word. God's intent in all of this was that their household would be saturated with the word of God. So that was God's intent for Israel. They were to be so saturated with the word of God that there was not a time in their lives, not a place in their home, not an action or a thought which was not to be informed by the word of God. All the time, everywhere, every thought and every deed. It was, it was what they were to teach and it was what they were to talk about. So how about us? Clearly, we are not instructed to obey these commands literally, nowhere are we instructed in the New Testament to physically bind God's law on our hands or on our foreheads. We aren't commanded to put them on our doors, our doorposts, or gates. But there is a principle that we see, and that is that God's design is for his word to saturate our homes and our relationships. Now we see this with parents and children. Ephesians 6, 4 tells us fathers, and by the way, when you see that word fathers, MacArthur explains that uh, he re it really is a term that um, explains parents, not just fathers, so you're not off the hook here. <laughs> fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So to bring them up means to nourish them to maturity. And this is in the present tense, which means that they were to keep on nourishing. Our training of them is ongoing, and it's with a goal in mind, maturity. Sometimes I think it's helpful to remember that we're not raising children. We are raising adults, and it's done by nourishing them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul describes how rich God's word is. It's, just, it's not just something to be brought up when correction is needed, although that is a good time. Um, and it's not only in the parent-child relationship, but it says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It's beneficial. It's useful. God's word in our heart bears good fruit first in our own hearts, to cultivate love and obedience to God, and then in the lives of those around us, to be used with care and love and grace, and to spur on the love and obedience to those in our family and to those in our church. Colossians 3.16 describes this overflow of God's word from our hearts into the lives of others in this way. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. We get that wisdom when the word of God is richly dwelling within us, teaching or explaining, admonishing or warning or encouraging one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. God's word is going to overflow in many different ways when it is dwelling richly within us. It gives us the wisdom to explain, to warn, and to encourage, and it produces thankfulness in us. And it's also important to remember that the word of God is God's mean for, means for bringing about faith. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's what we saw in Timothy's life, right? From childhood, he had known the sacred writings which are able to give the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So this principle continues from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And so if we are gonna be wise women who build up our homes, we will labor to continue to impress God's word on both our own hearts and on the hearts of those precious lives 
who live in our home and those who come in. And it must be ongoing. We can't be surprised when a truth or an instruction doesn't stick the first time that we say it. That's not what we see in God's word, right? The picture that God gave Israel was that of sharpening a knife, stroke after stroke after stroke, or the engraving of granite. Thousands of tiny blows are required to permanently etch the message in stone. So think about what we know about our own hearts and our own ongoing need for God's word, our ongoing need to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over. And so we must be wise women who do not grow weary in nourishing and teaching and encouraging and correcting with God's word in our homes. And let's not forget the warning, we'll be tearing down our homes if we foolishly allow ourselves to be content with maybe some teaching that we had in the past, or we don't continue to actively impress God's word in our hearts, as well as in the hearts of those in our home. Again, remember Israel, God's truth needed to be heard and seen and remembered all the time. So let's be diligent to make God's word clear in everywhere, in every place that we can. All right, let's go back to Deuteronomy 6, and we're going to look at our next principle. <clears throat> Homes filled with love and obedience toward God in his word will be filled with opportunities for declaring the greatness of God and his gospel. So we've seen that Moses has been telling the Israelites how to live as God's people <clears throat> who love him excuse me, <clears throat> and fear him. And now in verses 10 through 19, he warns them. <clears throat> he says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. <clears throat> so he's warning them ahead of time that there will be a temptation when they enter the land, when everything is going well for them. That's when they need to take heed. That's when they will be tempted to forget God. And it reminds them that they are to fear only Yahweh, to worship him, to not follow after other gods, to not test God with grumbling and complaining against him, but to diligently keep his commandments. And then in verse 20, he tells them of the opportunities that they will have for declaring the greatness of God. He says, when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what did the testimonies and statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? See, these children who had seen their parents love God, they'd seen their parents obey and fear God, and they were diligently taught God's word in their homes. These children who had heard their parents talk about God's word from morning to night who had seen the commandments written on doorposts and on gates, strapped to their parents' hands and foreheads so that God's word would be guiding them all throughout the day. These sons were one day going to ask them a question. What does this all mean? Why do we do these things? And their answer to this question would give them the great opportunity of being able to declare the greatness of God. Verse 21 says, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. The Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he sworn to our fathers. This God commanded us to observe these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. So these parents who had been faithful to teach their children God's commands would also have the opportunity to tell their children that God had miraculously rescued them 
from slavery in Egypt. And as New Testament believers in the church, we teach our children God's commands so that we can declare the gospel, that the Lord has delivered us from slavery to sin. We teach those in our household that we obey God because he is the great deliverer and he has a right to rule our lives. His commands are for our good. A life of love and obedience toward God, which is saturated with God's word, both in our hearts and also in our homes, will give us opportunities to proclaim the greatness of our God and his salvation in the gospel. This principle serves as a great reminder of why we teach our children. We teach them to obey even when they don't understand completely, without whining, without challenge, because training our children to obey paves the way for teaching how God's commands point to his character and his word and his salvation. So we want to be wise women who build up our homes through rich dialogue about how awesome God is. So when you're out on a walk with your children or your grandchildren, you stop and you wonder at God's creation. When your child loses their first tooth, you talk about how amazing God is and how he created their little bodies. You cultivate an amazement for who God is in the details of life. You nurture a sense of awe of who God is and of his great power so that when they hear that there is a way to be reconciled to this amazing God, when you are able to share the gospel with them, they will understand what good news it is. It will pave the way for gospel opportunities. So again, let me encourage you to be faithful in the opportunities that you have with your children, with your grandchildren throughout the day. A God-saturated home will be marveling at him in every part of life, and that can begin at such a young, tender age. Okay, we're almost done. We've got just one more. So if, as we have walked through Deuteronomy 6, and then we looked forward into the New Testament to see how these principles have been carried forward, for understanding the relationship between God and his word and our hearts and our homes. There is so much that we have already seen to spur us on in our pursuit of God in his word and our pursuit of building our homes with God's word. But before we finish, I want us to just very quickly look at one last principle. It's number six, and that is that God's word is overflowing with treasures for building our home on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. A lot of the other principles that we have looked at this morning talk about instruction, and we want to be faithful. We must be faithful and diligent with that. But we also want to remember that first and foremost, God's word is a book about God himself. It is by God and it reveals God. And as such, it supplies abundantly for us drawing near to God and for supplying everything that we need for life and godliness and everything those in our household need for life and godliness. Being wise women who build our homes with God's word doesn't just happen by accident. It takes planning and it takes commitment. We may find that we are doing well with this and then something in our schedule changes or a season of life changes or any number of things. And we may find that our biblical influence has taken a few steps backwards and it maybe it needs to be shored up again to be done intentionally and thoughtfully and in many different ways. Not just for correction, but for refreshment and for encouragement and for joy and for wisdom, giving those in our households greatest treasure. 
because God's word is what will reveal God himself to them. So if this is a hard, if this is a hard season now for any of you, I just want you to be encouraged. It will change, so persevere. And if this is an easy season for you, be thankful that it's easy right now, but also be aware it also might change but our hearts for God's word must never change. So let's be faithful in our homes by building them up with God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are just so thankful for your word, for the amazing treasures that we find there. Thank you that your word first and foremost reveals you to us. Thank you that uh, it leads us to worship, that it causes us to love you, to grow in that love and to desire others that we come in contact with to love you as well. Father, thank you that you didn't leave us on our own when it comes to instructing, to training those in our own homes. Father, you have given us such a privilege as moms and grandmothers or future moms and grandmothers. But you didn't leave us alone, Father. You gave us your word and you've given us principles that help us see how we can be diligent, how we can be wise women in building up our homes with your word. And so I pray, Father, that uh, as we go to discussion groups now, as we continue to think about the principles that we've learned this morning. Father, I pray that they will grow deep in our hearts and that they will grow in a way that we will know how to live them out for your glory and for the good of our family. I pray that we will be faithful to encourage one another when things are perhaps more difficult and uh, that we will rejoice when things are going well but always reminded and remembering that you are the one who causes all of these things, that you are the one who helps us and keeps us diligent in pursuing you. And so thank you so much. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.